0: Hello, I'm James Nurse, a pediatrician and the host of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease Podcast. Every two weeks I'm joined by the authors of a recent paper to discuss their research and explore their findings. With over 20 episodes to date, and there's plenty more to come, including today's episode on the diagnosis and management of organic acidemias. Good afternoon. One of the things that we love here at the JIMD podcast is a good guideline, so the only better than that is a sequel to a great guideline. So it's wonderful to be joined in this episode by two of the authors of the first revision of the guidelines for the diagnosis and management of methylmalonic aciduria and propionic aciduria, Dr. Patrick Forney and Dr. Matthias Baumgartner. Uh, Patrick and Matthias, good afternoon and thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, James. Good afternoon, James. Thank you for having us.
0: Now, um, Congratulations on the original guideline. You note within the intro to this paper just how popular it's been, accessed over 50,000 times with close to 200 citations. I could only dream of that much attention for the podcast. Why has it been so popular?
2: Thank you, James, for having us. I think there are a few things to say here. Guidelines have become available for more common disease in general in medicine, and I think they're now becoming more popular for rare disease as well. And especially in the field of rare disease, I think guidance is especially needed because of the poor evidence, which is often only available. And we'll come back to that, I think, later as well. And then also networking among doctors and patients has increased, and I think this requires more structured consensus strategies to sort of align internationally as well, what what should be done. And then with regards to the guidelines of MMA and PA, I think these are two diseases which are among the more frequent rare metabolic diseases and that might be another reason why it has been popular. I
0: mean, you mentioned patient networking there as well. Is there patient involvement in the development of this guideline?
2: Yeah, absolutely. We sort of changed the methodology of of the guideline in general and and the whole idea of the method is to focus on outcome parameters. So outcomes which are directly relevant to patients and of course, this required also patient or patient representative involvement. So we had those outcome parameters reviewed by patient representatives and also the recommendations, which is sort of the, um, the final result of the guidelines has also been reviewed by the patient representatives. So they have been involved,
0: yeah. It's so important to hear that it's patients who are determining what actually matters to them in the terms of the treatment of their disease. It, it, this is the first revision. It's only six years since the original guideline came out. Isn't that a little bit early to to go back to your guidelines? Is it going to everyone just worry that there's no point if they're gonna, everything's going to change within just a few years?
1: Well, actually, it's the field is really evolving quickly and it's not so soon. And actually, others other guidelines are being updated even more frequently. So that's number one. Then uh, there is also quite a bit of new evidence, and uh, especially on, on dietary management and on transplantation, which is still controversial, but there is m- more evidence, and that needs to go out and be discussed. And finally, as Patrick already said, there was this new approach to the evidence evaluation and how we would develop such a guideline. So this has changed totally in this new guideline.
0: And so what was the change to the approach you use then?
1: Yeah, as I've previously said, this is sort of
2: following a new method and the method is called GRADE. Previously it has been the method called SIGN. Um, regardless of those acronyms, the idea of the GRADE method is to um, focus on outcome parameters. So we have suggested um, some outcome parameters as a panel, as an expert panel, which was then reviewed by the patient representatives. And these outcome parameters um, include, for example, survival, metabolic stability, kidney function, early diagnosis, or other complications. So we have really focused on those outcomes when evaluating the evidence. And also the recommendations are then following the same structure. So each recommendation is sort of assigned to one of those outcome parameters.
0: Okay. The guideline obviously looks at the the disease from diagnosis through to management, but the the first part um looking at the diagnosis, you've got a, a table 2 in there and the guideline is available for anyone to read, so I'd recommend looking at that, but it provides a really lovely summary of the potential signs and symptoms that may be seen at the presentation of these patients. Um for those curious generalists listening, when should they be suspecting these conditions, and what are the right tests to do?
2: Um, so, first of all, these guidelines they focus on isolated methylmalonic aciduria and propionic aciduria. So, these are the two conditions which are obviously closely linked, which we discuss. And in general, in Table Two, we've listed a few um, symptoms or signs how patients can present acutely. And I think these are the signs which need to be recognized by the generalists. Um, Generally speaking, any child sort of presenting with a severe clinical picture and profound metabolic acidosis during a common trivial infection, this is sort of the alarm sign to suspect this kind of um, conditions. For example, a neonate with a sepsis-like picture or an infant becoming acutely ill, During the first common infection, for example, a gastroenteritis, these are the the sort of events which should trigger to think about MMA or PA. In, In rare cases, for example, PA can also present later on with one of the complications, which is a cardiomyopathy, which could be one of the first clinical signs, but this is much less common than the examples I've given before. And one of the recommendations as well, which is part of the guidelines, states how we diagnose these conditions, and that's by simply running a urine organic acid profile, which shows specific abnormalities for these two conditions. And these findings can then be sort of complemented with other analyses, such as acylcarnitine profile analysis, or then, of course, enzymatic and especially molecular confirmation tests.
0: I mean, urine organics is a relatively simple test, but it's just about convincing people they need to think to send it, isn't it? Um, Now, it's obviously preferable to identify these conditions before complications arise. There remains a huge disparity internationally around access to newborn screening. I'm in the UK. We barely screen for any metabolic diagnoses. Um, What were your recommendations around screening?
1: Well, we actually did not make a real recommendation. We had a very lively and intense discussion about that on this topic, uh, but did not come up with a recommendation and a clear conclusion. So we discussed the topic, but we don't recommend anything because the recommendations you can only make if your guideline group is really has a uh, comes to a conclusion, and we didn't.
0: Okay, so I won't push you for a personal opinion on that one then. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, obviously, you know we know these have been popular guidelines. They're clearly well known, uh, perhaps to the people who are listening. There are 20 run recommendations this time around. I don't know how many you had last time. What have you changed?
2: Yeah, last time, they were called statements, and there were about 60 of those statements, so three times the amount of, of the recommendations now. I think uh, the main change, as I've mentioned, was sort of the process Um, how we evaluated the evidence and how we came up with the recommendations, focusing on these outcomes. But the idea or the aim was as well to be more concise, to be shorter, to focus on management issues. And we did not want to provide a full review of the disorders, so we really focused on the essential things. So the paper is also shorter, Um, we have less recommendations. And the idea was also to only come up with a recommendation, as Matthias mentioned before, if there was enough solid evidence and if the panel achieved a consensus. Otherwise, we only discussed those aspects in the text. One example is newborn screening. And of course, um, transplantation is also uh, discussed in many aspects and at many points in the text as well
0: and so you've talked about the the change in the shape of the guideline there but it, in terms of the new evidence that you've seen and matthias was talking about new evidence around diet and things what are the specific new recommendations
1: well one specific about uh, the diet is that one has to be careful not to give too uh, much amino acid mixtures because that can bring a imbalance of amino acids and, and there is some evidence especially from the united states
0: that really uh, points to that and shows that this can be very dangerous for the patients. And Patrick mentioned transplant. We've heard in a recent episode from one of your co-authors, in fact, Dr. Monique Williams, around the European experience around transplant. There's, again, it's something else that's done differently in different places. It, have you sort of got a position on transplant for these patients? Well, we, we, we don't really have a
1: position. I think it really depends on uh, if you are a transplant center yourself, or not so that's one one thing if you're a transplant center the likelihood that you will transplant is probably higher then it, it is very different in different countries uh, it's probably more uh, more there are more transplantations in uh, the united states certainly but also in some european countries in others there is not so many so that's why probably we did not come up with a clear statement yet yeah and if i may add something Evidence-wise,
2: there are more and more um, papers coming out evaluating outcomes after transplantation. And I think a few things have been showed rather clearly. For example, we have used this term metabolic stability, which means absence of hospitalization or worsening of some of the um, symptoms in those patients. So it has been shown that transplanting will increase the metabolic stability in those patients. So they will not decompensate as often as they do without the transplant. That's sort of one of the advantages. But at the same time, which has also been shown uh, several times now, that patients after transplant will still suffer from neurological complications, which cannot be avoided by the organ transplant. So there are both things um, to be considered, and that's why we did not achieve a very clear recommendation on that. But still, there is one recommendation about transplant in the guidelines, which says every patient needs to be individually evaluated whether this patient should undergo transplantation or not.
0: Okay. I know certainly one of Monique's hopes was that you would develop a, a smoother pathway or a more consistent pathway towards transplantation when needed in, in IMD patients, there no with hoping for more European and international collaboration going forward. This is the first revision to the guideline, but obviously at the end of the guideline, you begin acknowledging some limitations in your approach. Does that mean there's already a sequel in the works?
1: Well, come on. It was a lot of work, and we haven't even gotten the chance to open a bottle of champagne to celebrate uh, that publication. (laughs) Of course, uh, guidelines work will never end. We will uh, have to go on and we will go on and we are very anxious to go on eventually if, and hope that there will be much new evidence that we can really put into a new guideline uh, paper. We don't hope that the method will change yet one more time because that was a hell of a lot of work to change the new approach and method.
2: Yeah, of course, including our our lab and and many other um, researchers, we continue to to, um, produce evidence about the management of these patients. And I think there will be the time to provide a revision. It has been six years since the initial guidelines. So we'll see where we stand in five years, I guess. But we're optimistic that we'll provide an update at some point. When
0: I spoke with Curtis Coughlin about his guideline on periodoxy-independent epilepsy, he he welcomed change because it showed that there there was progress being made in the field. And I suppose we can't rest on our laurels. We want things to move forward, especially when outcomes could be improved. This is an article that is available open access. It's there for everyone to read. I hope that you can manage to achieve a similar degree of success as you had have it with your, your previous one. I'm sure the journal will be very grateful if you could be cited 200 times, ideally in the next year. Um, so Patrick and Matthias, uh, thank you for making the time to speak with me this afternoon. Thank, thank you, you very you much. much.
2: I also wanted to uh, use the opportunity to thank all our co-authors. Of course, we have been 21 panelists and of course it wouldn't have been possible to go through all the evidence by ourselves. So it's really a team approach and um, thank you to all our co-authors as well.
0: Well, uh, thank you both again. And thank you to those who are listening, if you want to hear more, including that podcast I mentioned with Dr. Williams, then please look for JMD podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to read this article, just go to our web pages and search for guidelines for methylmalonic acidemia and propionic acidemia. And as I say, the first revision is there to read open access. Until next time, goodbye.